The following sermon is by Josh Pancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Amen. He is worthy of every bit of that glory. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's pray together. Lord, you are matchless in your glory and your splendor and your worth. What a privilege that we get to worship you and declare your praises this morning and marvel at such rich gospel truths. Lord, we pray this morning as we take a look at this gospel of our salvation, the fact that we are saved by grace alone. Lord, help us to understand it. We think we understand it many times, but there is a depth there that is such a profound truth, Lord, that we certainly have not exhausted and come anywhere close to exhausting it. We have but scratched the surface in our understanding. So help us to scratch a little deeper this morning. Enlarge our minds, enlarge our hearts to understand all that you have for us, Lord. Speak to us by your spirit and through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Typically, our pattern is to preach passage by passage through uh, different books of the Bible, something often called expository preaching. But at the moment, as uh, Noah alluded to, we are actually in the middle of a five-week series of sermons going through what are often called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, that word sola is simply the Latin word for only. And the reason I believe this is such a worthwhile thing to do is because these five solas really trace out the contours of the true biblical gospel. And so two weeks ago, uh, we looked at sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone. And that means that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. Uh, even though it can certainly be helpful to study different church creeds and uh, church traditions and things like that, the Bible is uh, really the authority above all of those other authorities. And then last week, Pastor Kevin preached a great message on sola fide, Latin for faith alone. And that we, means we are justified simply by faith in Jesus, not through baptism or church involvement or good works or anything else like that, but rather through faith alone. Now this week we'll be focusing on sola gratia, which means grace alone. And it means that we are saved purely by God's grace and not through any merits or achievements of our own. And then just to give a preview, next week is Solus Christus, Christ alone. That means that Jesus alone is the only one who saves on the basis of his life and death and resurrection. And then we'll wrap it all up with a message on Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So those are the five solas of the Reformation, which effectively served to distinguish the Protestant reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. And as I mentioned this morning, we'll be looking at sola gratia, grace 
alone. And I'll just go ahead and say that I love this idea of grace. In fact, I love it so much that any time I've gotten a chance to name anything, I've always tried to get grace in the name. I don't know if any of you have picked up on that theme, and so we named the church Redeeming Grace Church, named my daughter Grace, and so I, I just think it's the most wonderful thing in the world. And yet at the same time, there's a danger with grace of thinking that we understand it when we actually don't. I'm sure pretty much all of us have had something like that happen to us, right? Where we think we understand something, but we actually don't understand it. Uh, I know as a husband, right, there have been times where I thought I understood my wife. <laughs> but uh, let's just say I didn't understand her quite as much as I thought I did, and things can certainly get very interesting whenever that happens. And in a similar way, it's quite possible to think we understand grace, but actually be misunderstanding it in a very fundamental way, which is actually a very serious error, since grace is at the heart of the gospel. That means our eternal destiny depends on us having a biblical understanding of grace. Now, one way people often misunderstand God's grace is by viewing it merely as an attitude or a sentiment of God. Uh, kind of like we might say of a person that he or she is a gracious person or maybe in a particular circumstance that he or she showed grace to someone. For example, there are times when uh, we might say that a parent shows grace to their child who has misbehaved. And by that we mean that instead of disciplining their child, they decided to uh, let their child off with a warning. And that is a form of grace, uh, perhaps the most common form actually, but that's not what we're talking about or what the Bible's talking about when it speaks of the grace of God. Uh, God's grace doesn't refer merely to him having a gracious disposition or to him overlooking our rebellion. Uh, one thing we're going to discuss about God is that he never merely overlooks our rebellion. So be careful that you don't misunderstand God's grace in that way. Also, be careful not to view uh, or have a view of grace that basically boils down to God doing his part while we do ours. Uh, perhaps a more popular way of phrasing it would be to, to say that God helps those who help themselves. Now, that may be true in a certain sense and in certain areas of life, but it's absolutely not true when it comes to our eternal salvation or eternal welfare. Uh, the Christian gospel isn't at all a message of God helping those who help themselves. That's actually the opposite of the gospel. And yet many people believe that that's the way we get to heaven, that God does his part while we do ours. And interestingly, it was this very error that the doctrine of sola gratia was formulated to correct. And by the way, one thing that's helpful to understand about all of these solas is that they were all formulated to correct some very serious misunderstandings 
of the Roman Catholic Church. And this all happened back in the 1500s. And, and so in order to understand these solas, we really have to understand Roman Catholic teaching. That's just a part of understanding the historical context here. And so as we think about sola gratia, the error in Catholicism that sola gratia was formulated to correct is basically a more sophisticated form of what we just talked about. That God does his part while we do ours. You see, Roman Catholicism does believe in grace, but not grace alone. Not sola gratia. Instead, Catholicism teaches a view of grace that involves human cooperation and human effort in order to be saved. Basically, to put it in everyday terms, it's people who need to take the initiative. People need to take a step toward God before God will then reciprocate that and impart his grace to them. Uh, the way this idea has commonly been expressed by the Catholic Church is that, quote, God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within them. Now, that expression is found in official Catholic documents, actually from medieval times, all the way down to the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s and the even more recent Catechism of the Catholic Church in the 1990s. God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within them. So you can see the assumption there that people, even in their natural, unsaved condition, have th th this certain ability, <laughs> the ability to well, do what lies within them. That is to take the initiative in moving toward God even prior to receiving God's grace. Uh, when you think about it, it's almost like we have to earn grace or that grace is a reward or at the very least a result of us doing something spiritually commendable in our own strength. And so essentially what you end up with, even though... Catholics typically wouldn't want to express it this way, is that we're saved not by grace alone, but by a combination of God's grace and our works. Again, God does his part while we do ours. Now that's the Catholic view. And of course, this error isn't by any means limited to Catholicism. Uh, we've just been talking about Catholicism since that's the historical context in which sola gratia was developed. But really, this idea of God doing his part while we do ours is most people's default way of thinking. In fact, the concept of grace may very well be the most misunderstood concept in the entire Bible even among many who would identify themselves as evangelical Christians or Bible-living Christians. And yet we find a much different picture of things in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this is the passage that Janet read earlier and that I'd really like to focus on for the remainder of our time together. So let's begin by looking at the first three verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So notice the way verse 1 describes us in our unsaved condition. Dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, the common assumption nowadays is that people are basically good. Right? That if you just give them the right education and the right examples and the right laws and the right opportunities, then they'll naturally follow the right path. But as we can see here, that's clearly not true. People aren't inherently good and just in need of a little bit of guidance. No, they're inherently sinful and in need of radical heart-level change. So that's one thing this verse teaches us. Yet that's not all. You see, this description of people being dead in transgressions and sins or trespasses and sins also corrects the common misunderstanding, even among many professing Christians, that people in their natural unsaved condition have the ability to move toward God or cooperate with God's grace even prior to receiving it. Notice that people are described here not as injured or as sick or as in the process of dying, but rather as dead. <laughs> like stone cold dead. Just as lifeless as any corpse in the graveyard. And that means that people in their natural condition are no more able to move toward God than a physical corpse is able to summon the strength to get up out of the grave. That's the spiritual condition of every single person in this world apart from the saving grace of God. We can't move even a single inch closer to God unless God first does a work in our hearts. If anything's going to happen, it has to come from His initiative rather than ours. And that's exactly what we find as we continue moving forward in Ephesians 2. Look what Paul says in verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here we see how God helps us, even in our utterly helpless condition. 
Remember, we were dead in trespasses and sins, right? But God, what does it say? Raises us to life. Verse 5 says that He made us alive. And here's the key thing for our purposes this morning. God raising us to life includes Him giving us not only the gift of salvation, but also the gift of faith through which we receive the salvation. So make sure you understand that. Um, even the faith through which we obtain salvation is itself a gift of God. We see this confirmed in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our salvation in its entirety, from beginning to end, is a gift of grace. Paul then goes on to say in verse 9 that all of this isn't in any way or to any degree whatsoever a result of works. That is, of human merit, human effort, human achievement, or even human cooperation. Now, as we're going to see a little bit later, God's grace does produce human cooperation, but it's not a result of human cooperation. And there are plenty of other verses we could go to as well. Uh, for example, Paul also writes in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So how did we come to believe in Christ? Well, it was granted to us. We didn't have the ability to do that on our own, but God granted us the ability. Also, Jesus states in John 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this really is the core of what sola gratia is teaching. It's by God's grace alone that we're able to come to him and receive the salvation he offers. And so contrary to what Roman Catholicism teaches, it's not about us doing our part and God doing his. It's not about us cooperating with God's grace prior to receiving it. It's not about God helping those who help themselves. Instead, it's about God helping those who are utterly helpless in every way and saving us sola gratia by grace alone. You see, Catholicism might teach a message of salvation by grace, but not a message of salvation by grace alone. And that's a huge problem because the entire gospel hangs on that one word, alone. If salvation doesn't come to us by grace alone, then it can't come to us at all because we have exactly zero Zero spiritual ability in and of ourselves. And so any supposed gospel 
that depends in any way or to any degree on human ability or goodness or merit is in reality no gospel at all. It is not good news. Listen, guys, the only thing that you and I will ever be able to contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. That's all we can contribute. Everything else is a gift of God's grace. In fact, let me take you very briefly to Romans 8, 29 and 30. These verses lay out for us what's often called the golden chain of salvation. Here's what Paul says, uh, speaking of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn, that is, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there are the five links of the golden chain of salvation. Five things that God has done for us in his grace. First, he foreknew us, it says, in uh, the sense that he set his love and affection on us from eternity past. And then the text says that he predestined us in the sense that he chose us to receive salvation. And then he called us in that he worked in our hearts in such a way that we came to saving faith. In fact, we, we couldn't help but come, actually, because his call in this context was irresistible. And then next it says he justified us, meaning that he declared us righteous in his sight on the basis of the righteous merits of Jesus. And then finally, he glorified us, uh, which refers to our future heavenly state that's so sure to happen in the future that it's spoken of here as if it's already happened. So that's what God did. The golden chain of salvation. And notice in these verses how much it's emphasized that God is the one who did all of these things. It says that He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. He, 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 He. God is the one who accomplishes the work of our salvation and who takes the initiative to accomplish it every step of the way. Guys, our salvation isn't something that we start and then he finishes. It's also not something that he starts and then we have to finish. No, it's something that he both starts and finishes. Our salvation in its entirety, from its beginning in eternity past to its end in eternity future, is a work of God's grace and His grace alone. And the way God's gracious to us in all these ways is inextricably connected to His Son, Jesus. 
Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot more next week when we talk about solus Christus, that our salvation is in Christ alone. But just make sure you understand, even this week, that God's grace is always, always connected to Jesus. Uh, quite simply, there can be no grace apart from Him. Apart from His perfect life to satisfy the demands of God's righteous standards. Apart from His sacrificial death to pay for our sins. And apart from His triumphant resurrection to win the decisive victory over sin and death. It's only through Christ and His life and death and resurrection that God's grace comes to us. In fact, the, the connection there between God's grace and, and Christ is so strong that I've even heard it said that to speak of grace is essentially to speak of Christ. Again, there is no grace apart from Him. Now, as we think about this ideal of sola gratia, that we're saved by grace alone, some might object to the idea, or at least have some concerns about it, because they wonder, does sola gratia render us entirely passive? Like, as recipients of God's grace, do we just receive it in an entirely passive manner? And the answer is no. Uh, the Bible's very clear that in order for us to be saved, we have to repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So God doesn't repent and believe for us, right? Rather, he calls us to repent and believe. And as we've seen, enables us by his grace and puts it in our hearts by his grace to do so. In addition to that, not only are we not passive in repentance and faith, but we're also not passive in our progressive growth to spiritual maturity as Christians, something spoken of in the Bible as sanctification. The Bible is very clear that as Christians who have had our hearts changed by God and who are now indwelt by his Holy Spirit, that we need to pursue holiness. And it's at this point that we come full circle back to Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to look at verse 10, but for context, I'll reread verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice the distinction here. Verse 9 tells us that our salvation is not a result of works, but that's then followed up in verse 10 uh, by that verse telling us that we were saved for good works. So not a result of works, but for good works. And that basically means that good works aren't the means to salvation, but they are the evidence of salvation and the manifestation of salvation and the fruit of salvation in our lives. 
God saved us for good works. And then it says that we should walk in them. Now notice that that's not a passive statement, is it? It's our responsibility to actively walk in good works as we're enabled and empowered by the grace of God. I think another verse where we can see this balance quite well is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the only reason any of this is possible is because of God's grace. For it is God who works in you. Verse 13 says, Sola gratia. And yet, we are still called to work out our own salvation. Which is obviously not a passive thing. It requires lots and lots of grace inspired and grace-empowered effort on our part. We have to work out in our lives what God has worked in our hearts. And so perhaps the best way of responding to the question of whether sola gratia leaves us entirely passive is to say that yes, we're saved by grace alone, but that grace is transformative. Our salvation from beginning to end is a work of the grace of God, but that grace is transformative. In that, it produces grace-enabled effort on our part as we work out our own salvation. Now, I know that all of this has perhaps been a lot to digest uh, this morning. Uh, some of you might be feeling a bit of a headache come on as you try to process all of this information and wrap your mind around all of the, the nuances of sola gratia. But at the same time, uh, I hope, and, and my prayer has certainly been, that all of these truths that we've covered would have a profound effect, not just on your intellectual understanding of things, but on your heart. Listen, sola gratia, if you really understand it and really believe it, should unlock new levels of joy and gratitude and awe and wonder and amazement in your heart. Yeah, almost like, you know, a video game or something. I don't really know much about video games nowadays, but I know... When I was growing up, at least, you would have to unlock the higher levels, right? Usually that might be something, uh, just do something as simple as beat the current level. But you would have to unlock those higher levels of the game. And so that's sort of the way, I guess, I hope this sermon functions this morning. Hopefully, a, a deeper grasp of these truths of sola gratia can unlock new levels of worship and gratitude in your life. I mean, when you think 
about the way that God has poured out his grace on us. So abundantly. Even when we were in such a, a wretched and hopeless and helpless condition. I mean, doesn't it make you want to worship him even more? Hopefully, it does. In fact, I think it would even be fair to say that your worship of God and your gratitude toward God will never exceed the level to which you grasp the grace he's shown you. The level to which you grasp his grace will, in effect, function as the limit of your ability to worship him. Kind of like a vehicle or something might uh, have uh, something installed on it that limits the speed that that vehicle is able to travel. Right? I know a lot of like moving trucks and things will, will do that. They'll have something that governs the speed of the vehicle. Well, I'll tell you what, your worship governor, <laughs> the thing that will limit your worship is your understanding and your grasp of this marvelous truth of the grace of God. And specifically, I would say, the truth related to sola gratia that we've talked about this morning. Uh, in addition to that, grasping the glorious realities of God's grace is a wonderfully liberating thing as well. Um, you see, a lot of people in our society go through their lives with a crushing burden on their shoulders. Uh, the burden of creating an identity for themselves. Perhaps more than at any other time in history, I would even say, that people carry around this burden of creating and maintaining a certain identity that they've selected for themselves. So for example, some people might try to create an identity for themselves through their career. They want to be successful and viewed as successful by others. So that's the identity they've embraced. Others might seem to fashion their own identity through social activism. I mean, they are very passionate about working toward a more just society. And they've become devoted to that pursuit to such a degree, really, that they're essentially finding their identity in that. Uh, they want to be able to view themselves and to be viewed by others as a passionate advocate for social justice. Or... Uh, perhaps others even find their identity in their role at home, uh, such as a mother. Uh, they've gone far beyond a healthy embrace of that calling and have instead begun to find their identity in that calling so that their joy in life effectively rises or falls based on how good of a mother they believe they are or on how well their children are turning out. So there are plenty of different ways in which uh, people can try to create an identity for themselves. And yet one thing that all these different sources of identity have in common is that they're all incredibly fragile. What happens if you find your identity in your career, but then you're not able really to make any progress in your career? You're not able to rise up the way you want it. Or that you even find yourself out of a job for whatever reason. 
What happens if you find your identity in the pursuit of justice in society, but then discover that no matter how hard you work toward that end, that things never seem to really be getting much better around you. What happens if you find your identity in motherhood? Or in fatherhood, for that matter. But somehow end up with kids who are making terrible decisions in their lives. What happens to your identity in all these situations? It's crushed, right? It's shattered. But a key part of the Christian understanding of grace is that God offers us not only an eternal salvation, like we've been talking about for most of the sermon, but even a present identity that's received rather than achieved. Let me say that again. The beauty of God's grace is that He offers us an identity that's received rather than achieved. I mean, how amazing would it be to, to be able to go through your life knowing with 100% certainty that your identity is secure. That God loves you and accepts you no matter what. That He loves and accepts you just as much on your worst day as He does on your best day. Because it's not based on your performance, but on that of Jesus. Like, how amazing would it be to, to be able to go through your life with nothing to prove and no one to impress? Again, because your identity is found in Christ and then the love that He has for you and the grace that He's shown to you. I mean, that's, that's revolutionary, isn't it? Grace changes everything. Changes everything about our future, of course, and also even everything about our present. As Samuel Davies once wrote, and we'll conclude with this quote, just marveling at the grace of God, he said, Great God of wonders, all thy ways display the attributes divine, but countless acts of pardoning grace beyond thine other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? In wonder lost, with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God. Pardon for crimes of deepest dye. A pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this godlike miracle of love, Fill the wide earth with grateful praise as now it fills the choirs above. Who is a pardoning God like thee or who has grace so rich?